0: If you entrust me with the presidency, I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. It's time for us to come together. United, we can and will overcome this season of darkness in America. My fellow Americans tonight, I profoundly accept this nomination for president of the United
1: States. Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Battle for Washington on RCB. We are very happy to be back for season two that we lost until election day. Unfortunately, last season was a bit shorter than expected, but anyways, what matters is that we're back, in good health, and ready for a second season. What a summer it has been, my friends. So many things have happened since the last issue for our podcast. Primaries ended, COVID exploded, country shut it down, candidates invested, and to talk about this unexpected summer, we'll receive a live from America Explained podcast in the second part of this episode. Last thing, we're really sorry, but as our university is closed, uh, we're not about to go in the studio and record uh, in proper condition this issue, so we already apologize for the bad sound quality, and we we'll hope you're going to like it anyways. So fasten your seatbelt and get ready to the takeoff of Season 2 of the Battle for Washington.
2: 2020 American Elections, this is the Battle for Washington.
1: As always, let's start with the news. President Donald Trump held a televised town hall in Philadelphia, Tuesday night on ABC. This meeting with uncommitted voters was aimed to give Trump more clarity in this very blurry end of mandate in this decisive state that is Pennsylvania. In 2016, the Keystone State went for Trump by just 44,000 votes, less than one percentage point of the total vote. And while a recent poll of likely voters in the state showed that Biden is now leading by nine points, a lot can change in the final weeks of an election, And opportunities for the candidates to answer directly to voters could be what swing voters need to choose a candidate. But things didn't go as expected. As Trump reportedly gave a precise and unverified answer to the audience, ABC counted around 2,000 fake news. Here are some takeaways about this night. First. Trump said that COVID-19 has been President's biggest challenge, but nothing more could have been done.
0: We still are dealing with 195,000 deaths in the United States right now. When you see that, when you think about that, does that give you any pause? Does it make you think? Is there anything I could have done differently? Anything? More I think like we could that? have had two million deaths if we didn't close out the country. So you regretted close No, I think we did a great job.
1: Two. The format of the show was also pointed to question, as Trump was disputing the very premises of the audience questions.
0: Well, I didn't downplay it. I actually, in many ways, I upplayed it in terms of action. My action was very strong. All through January and February, uh, you, you were you were downplaying, by your own admission, the severity of the crisis, that you didn't want to panic people. Not downplaying. But but you, let you, me just finish the question me. first. Not downplaying. Well, I you said those are I your words. I don't want to drive our nation into a panic But you have yet to address and acknowledge that there's been a race problem in America. So if you go, well, I hope there's not a race problem. I can tell you there's none with me because I have great respect for all races, for everybody.
1: And it ended up as Trump versus ABC's anchor rather than Trump versus the people. Three, Trump continued to focus on law and order even when asked about racial injustice.
0: Do you feel racial injustices are occurring in this nation? And if so, what can be done to address them? Well, I think they were tragic events, and I do feel that uh, we have to also take into consideration that if you look
1: at our police, they do a phenomenal job. Four, Trump claimed that current U.S. problems are product of democratic leadership. And five, it, it was a reminder that healthcare is still top of mind for voters.
2: I want to know what it is that you're going to do to assure that people like me who work hard, we do everything we're supposed to do, can stay insured. It's not
0: my
1: fault that I was born with this disease.
0: So first of all, I hope you are taken seriously. I hope you are. And we are not going to hurt anything having to do with pre-existing conditions. We're not going to hurt pre-existing conditions. And in fact, just the opposite. If you look at what they want to do, where they have socialized medicine, they will get rid of pre-existing conditions. You fought to repeal Obamacare. You are arguing... Well, I essentially su- did You, you are you're of of arguing in the Supreme Man. Court right now to strike it down. That would do away with pre-existing no, conditions. Oh, so you've we promised, can do new health care. But you've been promising a new health care plan. We interviewed, I interviewed you in June of last year. You said the health care plan would come in two weeks. You told Chris Wallace that this summer it would come in three weeks. You promised an executive order on pre-existing... Already. I have it already. But you've been trying to strike down the existing conditions. I have it already, and it's a
1: much better plan for you. At the end, the debate was so disastrous that Fox News called this town hall an ambush. On Thursday night, Biden also got the occasion to attend a town hall, but on CNN this time, and it was his first primetime interview since his nomination by the Democratic Party last month. The most glaring differences between Biden and Trump are often stylistic. Biden on Thursday night displayed empathy and in comments about cancer and his son, Beau Biden, humanity. And Biden's sharpest moment Thursday night might have come when he condemned Trump's characterization reported by the State of those killed and injured at war as losers and suckers.
0: My son died of cancer. He came home from Iraq. And I have to tell you, it really, really offended me when he volunteered to go there for a year and he came home because of with stage four glioblastoma. And the president referred to guys like my son, he won the bronze star, the conspicuous service medal, referred to him as losers, losers. Talk about losers.
1: Once again, it casted doubts on Trump's claim that a coronavirus vaccine will be ready or close to it in time for the November the third general election. And here comes a very important, critical, and hazardous matter in these elections: the vaccine, or how to play politics with public health. Biden and Trump have finally persuaded a lot of a lot of Democrats and Republicans to agree on something. The idea of getting coronavirus vaccine, at least right now, is somehow scary. And this, when taken into account, the decreasing rate of Americans that would be ready to get a vaccine against COVID-19 if it were available today. What is notable is how both candidates talk about it. On Thursday, Biden said, I don't trust the president on vaccines, I trust Dr Fauci. If Fauci says a vaccine is safe, I would take the vaccine, we should listen to the scientists, not the president. Trump has focused for weeks on convincing the public that a vaccine will be available imminently and ever before election day, and that the worst of the pandemic is over. Those statements have eaten fears that the approval process could be rushed for political purposes. It could benefit one or the other candidates, depending on the issue. In Biden's case, if voters distrust the president and the pandemic is still raging, well, that could be a political advantage. All in all, a vaccine is a matter of public health and not politics, which could lead to a dangerous game between the two candidates. Another variable came into campaign this week with the horrific situation in the West, wildfires. It can be another battleground between the two candidates as Joe Biden cast climate change and not violence as the real and immediate threat to the suburbs. This comes after Trump's last minute trip to California to meet with officials struggling with the catastrophe where he questioned their assertion that there was a connection between the fires across the state and climate change.
0: It'll start getting cooler. I wish you just, you just watch. I wish science agreed with you. Oh, well, I don't think science knows actually.
1: For at least some suburban voters, particularly those who live in the West, the threat of losing their homes to fire or the health risk to their families of skies clouded with smoke seems more immediate than the social unrest spotlighted by Mr. Trump in his speeches and advertisements. Anna Greenberg, a Democratic poster, said. Those fires in the West are obviously blue states, and most of the country is not experiencing it. But it is a reminder for a lot of people, especially for these better educated suburban voters, we thought would react to the law and order of how he is against science. The fires have helped to illustrate a critical difference between the Trump White House and the potential Biden presidency. In an election in which the gender gap was already a severe problem for the president, with polls showing women supporting Mr. Biden in far greater numbers than men, a renewed focus on climate could prove politically problematic for Mr. Trump's efforts to win over a voting bloc he memorably has labelled as the suburban housewife. Finally, this week, a new voice joined the chorus against President Trump and his handling of the Covid crisis. But this one is even more embarrassing as it is a former official in his own White House. She accuses him of failing to protect the American people. Her name is Olivia Troy, and she was Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to Vice President Mike Pence. Take a listen to this. His biggest concern was that we were in election year, and how is this going to affect what he considered to be his record of success? It was shocking to see the president saying that the virus was a hoax, saying that everything's okay when we know that it's not. It was shocking to see the president saying that the virus was a hoax, saying that everything's okay when we know that it's not. Now we are moving forward to the second part of our podcast, a summer in the US. Summer is usually the season of happiness, where students go back to their houses after a year far from home, it's the end of school, it's sunny, in a word, summer is a pose in a year. But it sounded different in 2020, and especially hard in the US with the COVID-19 outbreak with a horrific human toll. This summer, also, America was divided. America burned, America rose up after the death of George Floyd. The US will always remember this summer as a turning pot in their history, while both candidates running for the White House got their nomination from their parties. We have decided to leave the floor to an American to tell us about his experience as a citizen during this summer. Hello Eli, so you were confined in New Jersey for a very long time, could you tell us a little bit more about your experience?
2: Yeah, so uh, I returned home from school in uh, mid-March. And by the time I got home, things still hadn't shut down. Um, they weren't doing any temperature checks. There was, uh, it was kind of business as usual, which was kind of unsettling, coming back from New York where things uh, seemed to have been grinding to a halt. And I uh, got home, did my quarantine, and then uh, by the time about halfway through quarantine, things started to shut down in New Jersey. Uh, New York started to have uh, rapid uh, growth of cases, uh, subsequently as did New Jersey. And, uh, so yeah, I got caught in a little bit of a, uh, of a spike over there and it was certainly bizarre as everything started to shut down and, um, I was quarantined in my house with my family, which, you know, there's obviously worse places to be quarantined and worse people to be quarantined with. So, uh, yeah, that was a little bit about, uh, pretty much the basic of my experience and it lasted in quarantine, seeing minimal people going only where I needed to go, grocery store, doctor's office, always at the mass. uh, continued up until, uh, end of August, when I left back for school.
1: And for how long did you, did the whole country shut it down, or at least New Jersey shut it down?
2: So the thing is, in the United States, there was never a federal, there was never the federal government who gave us, uh, at least the states, any idea of what to do. They said, kind of leave it to the states to do it. So New Jersey shut down rather quickly, I want to say mid-March, could have been March 17th or 19th, I forget. But they shut down, New York shut down along with them, but the problem is that other states didn't shut down. Um, so it's very difficult to ban interstate travel, which meant that while New Jersey was shut down and the virus would, you know, slowly uh, dissipate the growth, at least in New Jersey, people were coming from places like Florida. People were coming from other places where there was not lockdown. So it was almost without use to lock down New Jersey if people were coming from the rest of the country who, where the virus was spreading actively. And I think we see that now where, you know, lots of people wish that we had shut down altogether, but New Jersey as a whole shut down. Um, for quite a few months, I uh, would say two to three months, two months definitely entirely. And then, as we entered mid-June, uh, things started to open up: in phase two, phase three, with outdoor restaurants, retail, and uh, now they're finally starting to open up uh, indoor restaurants and bars. Just now.
1: Mm-hmm. So there's um, a statistic that I want to share with you: is that one out of every two thousand Americans at the start of the pandemic has now died with COVID. So have you, it's like, it's huge, it's a huge human toll, it's very sad, and, and have you consequently observed a shift in the way Americans see public health, the the, the importance of public health?
2: Unfortunately not. There hasn't been a whole lot of uh, of uh, science going on, unfortunately, at least in my circles, my personal circles. Uh, you know, I keep, I keep informed, certainly scientifically, my family does, the people around me do, but it's a whole kind of... What I experienced certainly online was my circles of social media and just kind of what have I observed not only in New Jersey but the nation as a whole. Again, this is my personal view, is that people really went into, I'm going to protect myself, 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 and uh, I was kind of using science at their convenience. Uh, like, oh, look, it says I'm safe to go do this, I'm going to do that. But then when it says it's not safe to do something else, they're like, whatever, I'll do it. Uh, there wasn't a lot of attention to public health. Um, the federal government certainly didn't pay any attention to it. They didn't give uh, states like New York, New Jersey, when we desperately needed uh, personal protective equipment, ventilators, or any sort of uh, necessary medical equipment. We didn't get it. The government told us to settle for ourselves. Um, so unfortunately not. And I'm sure you know lots of people are familiar with the anti-maskers. And they're, uh, while they're still a minority, they're still a significant percentage. Uh, I remember seeing a poll that said 27% of Republicans uh, and about, you know, I think it was three between 3 and 5% of Democrats said that they would never wear a mask. And that was done even over the summer. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was definitely hoping for more attention paid to uh, to public health, but uh, it, it never really came.
1: And if you could give one adjective to describe the handling of this crisis by the government, what would it be?
2: Well, based on the way I see it, it's criminal. Uh, there's no two ways around that, especially uh, given the Bob Woodward uh, uh, tapes uh, where he, where Trump admitted that he knew about mm-hmm. it he was given. Obviously, we had already known he was giving a security briefing in January about it, and he chose to ignore it. Um, and the fact that he chose to ignore something in order to downplay it, in order to keep people from panicking, especially in an election year, uh, is nothing short of criminal. And, uh, and certainly, in my views, qualifies as high crimes and misdemeanors, which is uh, definitely grounds for impeachment. But uh, there's There was so much that this government could have done to prevent, uh, you know, now upwards of 200,000 Americans from dying needlessly and uh, tens and tens of trillions of dollars of economic loss and all the, the jobs lost and the, and the lives uprooted. I really do place it squarely on the government's wall.
1: So now let's talk about... Which was a, yeah. a big, a big moment in in the um, the American summer and also uh, in the whole world. So, how do you feel about that? How does it feel to see such unrest in his country and in, in your country?
2: Well, it's tough. Uh, you know, in, uh, I believe it was mid-May when the uh, the tape of George Floyd started circulating. A, it's hard to see, but uh, granted. Of course, you have to kind of put yourself through that. It's a, it's a responsibility to, to kind of not shield yourself from it, not fall into blissful ignorance, as I call it, or many others call it. Um, so, you know, it was a challenge. And I can't say it was a challenge for me personally because there's millions, millions upon millions of people in America, especially people, uh, BIPOC, people of color, um, and lots of other people in much worse situations who saw it as much more in front them personally and a threat and see their lives in general. So, um, well, it wasn't. It didn't hit as hard for me. Obviously, it hits everybody, or it should hit everybody equally. Uh, it was tough. And then the uh, there was a moment of unity, which was quite nice. Soon after, um, uh, you saw even the performative stuff on uh, social media was nice to see. Companies, whether it's fake or real, you know, there was some sort of kind of moment of unity where we all came together and said, this is wrong. And then came the anti-racist movement, but then it all fell apart, uh, you know. White people statistically started to support Black Lives Matter less. They started calling Black Lives Matter Marxist. Um, they started to change things. There have been more police shootings since, and it just really feels like uh, like all the progress that could have been made uh, from uh, you know from the tragic death of, of George Floyd and everybody afterwards. And, you know, I'm not going to forget to mention the death of Breonna Taylor, which is still unsettled. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, I really feel like it's all falling apart, and we're right back to where we
1: square one. And I hope that doesn't say that way. I hope you can change each question. And now the, the final question. Uh, so we're going to talk about the elections because it's the, the, the matter of our podcast. So each candidate to the White House received their nomination by, by their parties and gave during the their respective national convention sensibly different visions of America. And so We have the impression that the two sides cannot understand each other and are unable to be reconciled. So how do you assess, as an American, this profound division in your country?
2: Well, it's an artificially stoked division, in in my views. Obviously, there's a lot of things that divide Americans, but that's nothing new. Americans have always been divided on a number of fronts. Uh, Now it's just that uh, politicians are doing their hardest, they're doing their darndest to make sure that people stay divided. Um, you know, instead of saying, uh, you know, for instance, Black Lives Matter, it was a great moment for unity for Americans to come together and say what Derek Chauvin did to George Floyd was a crime, was a uh, result of personal negligence, personal hatred and obviously systemic racism. But instead, people chose to politicize it. They, uh, they instead chose to run for the hills and protect, you know, to start crying about property and all these things and crying about you know, kneeling for the flag. So I really think it's, uh, it's it's almost beyond the point of reconciliation, um, you know, the, uh, what's going on. I know Joe Biden, while, you know, he does make uh, a message for a unification, and I do think lots of Americans uh, certainly believe that he can do it, I think that America's kind of gone down that rabbit hole where it's either Trump or Biden, and depending on who you vote for, it's no longer, oh, okay, it's just my political views. It's kind of like your entire worldview. It's your view of America at It's inclusive strive for an for a more egalitarian society um, or at least egal- equality and opportunity or moving towards uh you know we want to keep everything the same nothing can change um which is kind of in the uh especially that's been the motto of the uh, trump campaign 2020.
1: well thanks a lot eli for uh, coming to uh the first episode of the second season of The Bow of Washington, and I want to take this opportunity to say that you're also hosting a wonderful podcast, America Explain, wow. which I hope will continue this year and take a listen to to it on Spotify. It's, it's really a, a beautiful podcast. Thank, thank you, you, Eli. Thank you very
2: much. Yeah. All right. Thank you for having me.
1: It is already the end of this episode, and we finally went back to serious things. We hope you liked it, and there's great things coming soon, so stay tuned. RCB is available on all streaming platforms. It was The Battle for Washington, Season 2, Episode 1. See ya.